Allison, in your Bible, if you would join me in Matthew chapter number 12 this morning. Matthew chapter number 12. We're going to read verse 22 down to verse number 30. Matthew chapter number 12. The Bible says in verse number 22, Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and mute or dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and the dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils or demons, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons or devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts. It's a pretty incredible thought. And said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? If you'd read verse 30 with me. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Father, we are so blessed to be able to come into this place with those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, to hear songs that lift up the name of our Lord and Savior, to hear testimony of those who've trusted in Christ. God, we pray today that you would do a work in us that would be profound. Lord, you said in your scriptures that the word is like a fire. And I pray that it would be set aflame in us to consume us today. You call it a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And so we pray that it would like a hammer crush the pride in our life, cause us to see our utter dependency upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Break us of self-sufficiency. Break us of self-love. And may we love you with all of our heart and love others as ourself. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Do your work. God, we need you today desperately how much we need you. Open our eyes. Open our ears. Grant us sight. Grant us the ability to perceive and comprehend the depth and the weight, and the breadth, and the height of the glory of Christ, and the magnitude of your word. Lord, unsettle us today upon yourself. Let us see you for who you are, that we might see ourselves for who we are. And may we leave today reflecting Christ more, and less looking like ourselves. We long to honor you, that one day that we would hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Bring to pass your glorious purposes today. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. You may be seated this morning. We live in a physical world. 
and our senses communicate that reality every day through sight, sound, feeling, smelling, and perhaps one of our favorite, tasting, which was pleasantly sweetened through the holiday season. You know, the older you get, some of the sight and the hearing can fade, but praise God, the taste doesn't go down, amen? We may not be able to chew as good as we used to, but boy, it tastes good. But there is a dimension that we live in that's not just physical. There is a real spiritual world, and it's important to understand that. There is a real group of entities called angels, and there are real demons. The Bible is very clear that there are two kingdoms that are at war, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The great savior and the great sinner. The holy God and an unholy devil. And it's not hard to look at our world today and see the reality of evil. We saw just again this past week when a 17-year-old Dylan Butler, a high school student, went into Perry Middle School in Iowa and decided to shoot up a bunch of kids and teachers. The brave principal sought to deflect the student and received multiple shots. An 11-year-old boy died in the shooting. Four other students were shot, three faculty members. 2023 was a record-setting year for mass shootings in America. The most we've ever seen. The amount of lying and dis torsion of what is true is at an all-time high in this nation. You cannot believe what the media says. You cannot believe what the outlets of America, they're as deceitful as Russia's media. They're as deceitful as what you see in China today. The brainwashing, the lies that are also being taught in our higher educational students. We see the evil men like Jeffrey Epstein. Does anybody actually think he hung himself? I mean, how ridiculous do they think we are? It's so absurd. The pedophilia, the child trafficking, the sex trafficking, and the covering up of these things by those in leadership in our nation. They may be able to escape the judgment of men because they can pay their way out of it, but I can tell you this, God cannot be paid off. And our God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. When Jesus came to earth, his ministry confronted head-on the kingdom of darkness. Satan sought to kill Jesus when he was just an infant. King Herod had all the children to and under murdered in Bethlehem. Who kills little babies? King Herod in the abortion clinics of America. He sought to exterminate the Jewish people through men like Haman in the Old Testament, through Assyria, and also through the Romans in the New Testament era in 70 AD. Satan's desire has always been to eradicate the Jewish people. He hates the Jewish people. I would ask the question, do we see anti-Semitic spirits growing around the world today? What Hitler, who acted as a puppet for Satan, sought to do in slaughtering the Jewish people, the Muslims have now taken upon themselves. Hezbollah... Hamas, Iran, currently there are 28 United Nation member states that do not even recognize Israel as a nation. 
The United Nations is a joke. It's a joke. America should pull out of that long ago. The book of Revelation makes clear the world will converge on the nation of Israel in the final days before Christ's return at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The world will come against the nation of Israel. Satan wants the world to turn against that nation, and we are seeing that being unfolded before our very eyes. We're living in the last days. When you have college presidents at Ivy League schools who will not condemn rhetoric that calls for the genocide of a people group, you know that Satan and evil is at work. The Bible is very clear that the devil and demons are real. The scripture affirms that reality. Seven books of the Old Testament teach that Satan is real. In the New Testament, every writer of the New Testament confirms Satan's reality. Jesus taught Satan was real. In fact, 29 passages in the Gospels that speak of Satan, in 25 of them, Jesus is speaking. Satan personally tempted Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness, according to Jesus. Satan was once holy and enjoyed heavenly honors. He was the anointed cherub. Yet through pride and ambition to be as God, he fell according to Ezekiel 28, verse 14 through 17, and Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 15. His pride was filled up, and he deceived a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion. Satan is the enemy of God and the leader of his demonic force. Ephesians 6 verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That is an important truth. There are things at work beyond the physical realm. He says we wrestle against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. That is a ranking of the demonic host that work under Satan. 1 Peter 5.8, we are warned, be sober, be vigilant, be alert, because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. He is called Satan 52 times in Scripture. The word Satan means adversary. He is an adversary of God, of God's people, of God's angelic host. He is called the devil 37 times. The word diabolos, we translate as devil, means one who slanders or trips up. He is a slanderer. He is called the old serpent. He is called the great dragon in Revelation 12, the roaring lion, the evil one. The Bible calls him Abaddon and Apollyon, which means the destroyer. He is a tempter. He is the accuser of the brethren. Jesus called him a murderer and a liar. And Jesus, according to the scriptures, came to destroy the works of Satan. 1 John 3, 8 says, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. Why? that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus said that Satan is the god of this world, the prince of this world, and it is under his control. And Jesus came to crush Satan, which he did. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. And it's fascinating that 
on the backdrop of that advancement of the church, he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are not an attacking entity. Gates are designed to keep an outside force from invasion. Jesus says the church is the invading force. We're on the offense. We're not huddled up, scared of the world. We're conquering the darkness. We're going into cities, preaching the gospel, and seeing Christ build His church. We, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We stand victorious. The church wins. When everything in the world will be crushed one day, the bride of Christ will be exalted. The gates of hell cannot prevail. Jesus highlights the reality of the church, the kingdom of light and truth, and the spiritual evil referred to as the gates of hell. Ever since starting Lighthouse, there has been so many spiritual attacks against this work, and they, I've, I've learned that they just never stop. Early on, it was hard for me to like, identify that. I didn't understand the level of spiritual attack. I would see things in the fleshly realm, but I did not understand there was a spiritual reality working. It was mysterious to me why, why things would happen. Like, why is, why is this group so hard against us? Why are these struggles? Why are these situations like they are? And there are spiritual attacks that go on. And if you're not discerning to understand and identify that, you will be deceived. You will be defeated. You will crumble. The key to victory over satanic attack and lies is to do exactly what Jesus did. In Matthew 4, when he was tempted of Satan for 40 days, the only way Jesus refuted him, and he could have done it, he could have done it many ways, but he chose to quote the scriptures. Every time Satan came against him, Jesus said, it is written. It is written. It is written. Now, it's interesting. Jesus was alone in that temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. No one saw that. So he comes back, tells his disciples what went on in the wilderness, and then he tells them specifically how I gained victory over the great enemy. And what Christ is showing us is the way to victory is to take the word of God, and resist the devil from which he will flee from you, according to James 4, 7. That's why when people say absurd things like, you know, I believe God wants me to leave my spouse. Really? Based on what? There are situations where divorces happen. I understand that. And there's times where separations need to occur because of danger or threats and, 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 and things can happen. But you have to ask yourself, is Jesus telling you that or could you possibly be being deceived? Sometimes, say, sometimes people say, you know, I feel like I just need to stay home for a while and kind of pull out of church and just kind of do my own thing. Oh, really? Can you find one place in all of God's writings where he ever encourages that? Because I can tell you... Lions don't attack the body of the, the, the group. They will attack the ones who they can separate from the pack. They always look for the ones who get away, the wildebeest that gets away from the pack, right? The, the coal that rolls off the, the body of coals is what grows cold first. You, there's heat in the body. There's safety there. Satan is real. His attacks are real. I remember years ago, I was feeling so oppressed, just like, I don't even know how to describe it, but just so pressed down. And I, 
these thoughts in my head like you need to get out of the ministry, you need to quit the ministry, and just just rattling my mind like a force that I can't even put into words. And, and I remember laying at bed at night, just night after night, I couldn't sleep, my thoughts were going crazy. And, and, um, and then after about, a, I don't know, a week of this just torment, I, I thought, man, I just need to get out of the ministry. I'm doing more harm than good. You know, I just, I need to quit. And, and, and I remember in the middle of the night thinking, there's no way God's telling me to do this. There's no way God wants, this is, this is a lie, this is satanic, and I said, God, would you remove this from me? And I will tell you, I felt as though a presence came off of me. And the next morning, I did not even tell my wife, and she said, you know, I felt like there was something evil in the room last night. Listen, friends, Satan will lie to you. He will come after your marriage, he will come after your children, he'll come after you being used by God. He will assault you. He will attack you. And you must understand the thing that turned the light on for me was the Scriptures. I know God doesn't do that. He's called me to this. He's equipped me for this. He's, he wants me in this place. And, and so just understand that reality. Now in our passage this morning, Jesus' kingdom is once again coming head to head with Satan's. And last week we saw Jesus as the divine son, and here we see him this morning as the divine king, whose kingdom is in conflict with the kingdom of darkness. Now look at verse number 22. It says, Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and mute, you could translate it as, both spake and saw. So to bring this man to Jesus clearly evidenced they believe he had the power to deliver him from these bondages. You need to understand, Jesus in his ministry displayed power over demonic force. Demons are fallen angels, according to the Bible, who followed Satan in his rebellion. Revelation 12.4 refers to a third of the angels who followed after Satan in that rebellion. Jude chapter 1 verse 6 speaks of this. It says, the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, hath he reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. 2 Peter 2, 4 writes, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So, the, demon, the angels that fell, there were some that were bound demons that were so wicked that they had to be enchained in hell. And then there were some that were unbound that still roam on the earth according to the Bible. Now what's interesting is that if you go through the Old Testament, you do not find demon-possessed people. You have lying spirits. King Saul was tormented by a demon, though never said to be possessed by the demon. You have the Bible saying those who worshipped false gods were worshipping unto demons and sacrificing to demons. The Bible calls the religious gods of other religions demons. Interestingly enough, after the four Gospels, you only have two occasions of demon-possessed people in Acts 16 and Acts 19. You have a demon-possessed girl. Demon possession is never even mentioned in the rest of the epistles of the New Testament. Paul never writes of it as being an issue in the churches. John never writes of it. Jude, Peter, James, they, none of them write of this. But 
was fascinating in the life of Christ during those three years, there was a level of demon possession that has never, never been anything like it in human history, only to be exceeded by the demon possession that will exist in the time yet to come known as the Great Tribulation, just prior to the second coming of Christ. And what's What's interesting about that is God himself will actually aid in the manifestation of opening up the pit of hell in Revelation 9 and those bound demons that were so wicked, God will unleash on this earth. And it will be so horrifying that the Bible says, according to Revelation 9 verse 6, that in those days men shall seek death and it shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. These demonic hosts will torment them in ways that are beyond we, what we could understand. Fear and terror. Sometimes people say today, I hear people say, you know, I, hell is on earth. I don't believe in a literal hell. Hell is on earth. And well, in that day, the people who did not want Christ, they did not want God, they're going to feel what it's like to have no restraint of evil and godless existence on this earth. You don't want God, then you will get the reality of hell unleashed. The only reason that the world is not as vile as it could be, is, is that the Holy Spirit, according to John 16, verse 8 through 11, is a restraining agent keeping people from being as wicked as they could be. And we're seeing the restrainer letting this nation go. We're seeing the restrainer who's pulling away, and that's why you have more and more violence and wickedness and shootings and rapes and pillages and pedophilia and child trafficking and sex trafficking just running rampant and, and drug addiction and just, just the brokenness of our world is, is so far gone. Do you know there are more people who will die of legal drugs this year than of illegal drugs? More people die of prescription medication than all other drugs combined. The, 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 the money that is behind the world systems today, the wickedness at such high levels, demons are still active all over the world. They usually work behind the scenes. Paul declared in the last days they will be working. First Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. I believe demons work also in the realm of medical areas, of, of drug abuse, I should say. Uh, what's interesting is in the Bible, the word for witchcraft is the Greek word pharmakia. It's where we get the word pharmacy from. Now, again, we have some great pharmacists that come to our church. I thank God for the Christians that do that and, and praise God for you. This is not anything against you. What I'm trying to say is in that area, in the, during the first century, People would get intoxicated both with, uh, at the Bacchanalian feast, the, the feast of alcoholism, and they would also uh, use drugs and different things to get them into a, a, a place of inebriation. And they believed that it was through that that they could commune with the gods. And, and it opened them up. And I've talked to many people over the years in, in, that have been involved in drug addiction and the amount of spiritual attack, the amount of wickedness that went on, the amount of crazy things that happened. And I can tell you this, that, that when you go to some cities around Seattle and California and some of these places where you have massive amounts of people walking around the streets, and I believe demon-possessed, 
drug-stupored situations that are extremely dangerous. And why are those drugs so powerful? Because I believe it unleashes not just a physical effect, but a spiritual bondage. The reason that people stay into drugs is not simply chemical, it is spiritual. It is an idolatry. It is, I will give everything up for that drug. Jesus says, love me more than your life, love me more than your family, and love me more than your finances. And drug says, no, you do that for me. Love me more than your life, more than your money, and more than your family. And the drug addict will give up his health, his family, and all of his money for that drug. And and that drug is a false god, and it destroys them. And when they remove the false god for the true god, then Jesus gives their life back better, their family back better, and their resources back better. He's the true god, amen? And so freedom, what happens in America today, here's our philosophy, you want to get off drugs? Well, let me give you four drugs to get you off that drug. Y'all with me? You think a billion dollar industry is behind this? Y'all with me? We're, don't be de- deceived. Don't be a sheep of the world. Now, again, I, I understand that there are step down drugs. I understand that can happen sometimes. So believe me, I know what I'm saying. Just I don't need to keep going down that road. I wasn't even planning on talking about it. So. Now, the thought of evil spirits and demons may be an intimidating thing for some people. Some people may be so scared to even think about that. But you need to understand that Jesus was not scared of demons. In fact, demons were terrified of him. In the first sermon that he preached at Capernaum, there's a synagogue guy that gets exposed as being demon-possessed. It's in Luke 4, verse 33. It says, and in the synagogue, there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil or demon and cried out with a loud voice. Now, what does a demon say to Jesus? Like, like, like what are they going to say? He says, let us alone. Leave us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? And then he says this, again, demons have been around for thousands of years. He says, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Now, did anybody expect a demon to get up and say an orthodox statement? Did anybody expect a demon to get up and give Jesus honor? And Jesus rebuked him saying, hold thy peace. In other words, keep your mouth shut and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. And they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What word is this? For with authority and power he commanded the unclean spirits, and they come out. It doesn't say they were like, what just happened? Because they were familiar with demon-possessed people. They recognized that reality. They were just shocked the way he did it and what he had power to do. When Jesus came to Gadara, there was two men possessed with demons. They were undressed. They were in the cemetery of Gadara, and they cut themselves. Do we ever see people cutting themselves these days? Do you know cutting yourself is a demon, demonically influenced activity, young people? If you get into cutting yourself, you're opening yourself up to demonic realities. God doesn't say cut yourself. 
In the Old Testament, Elijah was pitted up against 400 false demonic prophets of Baal who cried out to their demon gods and cut themselves trying to get the demon gods to respond. You need to run away from that kind of deception if you ever get into that realm. And so when Jesus comes to these guys who are cutting themselves, they're, they're a mess. In Matthew 8, 29, it says, Behold, they cried out, they shrieked. These demon-possessed guys were scared when they saw Jesus. And they said, What do we have to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Isn't it fascinating that they just keep saying that? I could take you to verse after verse after verse in the Bible. They, are all, they, they typically fell down prostrate pleading with him, do not torment us. Do not send us into the pit. Don't send us where the worst of the demons went. A lot of times I'll talk to people in the world and they'll say, you know, I believe in God. If you stood before God, he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? They're like, I believe in God. I'm like, well, that's good. You're intellectually correct, but you know demons go beyond the intellect that affects them emotionally. You know, the Bible says in James 2.19, thou believest that there is one God. Well, that's good. The devils also believe, but they also tremble. So demons actually are more orthodox than you. Your, your belief means nothing if it's not surrendered belief. If it's not you confessing Jesus as Lord and giving your life to him, you can be intellectually correct all day long and be going to hell. Salvation is not just intellectual. It's not just emotional. It's an issue of the will. It's saying, Jesus you take the throne. You are Lord. Demons are said to have power to afflict men with disease and cause them to act in out-of-control, bizarre behavior. If there's anything that I could liken demon possession to today, it would be if you just read what schizophrenia is. If you ever studied schizophrenic behavior, that, that is a reflection because the medical world doesn't understand demonic realities. They don't believe in that. And so they classify that as something that really is a demonic thing oftentimes. Now, verse 22 says that Jesus cast this demon out that was causing this man to be both mute and blind. And verse 22, as a result of that, the blind man, verse 22 says, both spake and saw. Jesus heals the guy. Now, my question is, in the face of this clashing of kingdoms, what are the responses to Jesus' miracle? How do they respond to this? Well, there's a couple responses, and they're both wrong. So let's look at some wrong responses to the rightful king. The first is the response of being amazed and yet dubious. They, they were amazed and dubious, or they were uncertain of him. The word amazed there is existemai. It means to be thrown out of position or displaced, astonished, shocked. In the words of a junior high, they, are, they were blown away. It, it, it was insane. That's why it says in verse 23, all the people were blown away. It amazed them. They were just shocked. And then they said, is not this the son of David? Another way you could say that is, could this be the son of David? You know, expectation's a powerful thing. It's more powerful than I think people realize. Have you ever had anybody uh, place an unrealistic expectation upon you? You said, sure, my wife or my husband. 
But you know, if you have an unrealistic expectation placed on someone, it really doesn't matter what they do. People just don't believe. They, they, they just don't, they won't accept it. And it was the Jews' expectation of what they thought the Messiah should be that caused them to struggle to see Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, they heard what he said and they're like, you know, that's solid. They saw what he did, you know. But he just doesn't look the part. I mean, he's just so humble. You know, there are people today that have grown up in such a conservatively tight realm that if a pastor got up without a tie on, without a suit jacket, it didn't matter what the guy preached, they'd be like, nah, I just can't, you know, he said some good stuff, but you know, it just, just doesn't fit. And that's the kind of foolishness and blindness that these people had when they saw Jesus. He was dressed so humbly. He didn't have king apparel on. He had, he, had, he had just normal people's clothes. He looked like a normal guy. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, there is no beauty of Jesus that you would have desired him. You would have looked at him and been like, no wonder people followed him. You know, he's a foot taller than everybody. He's a handsome. He's strong. He's, I think Jesus was a strong man. He carried a 150 to 200 pound cross up that old rugged hill to Calvary and, and he did that. He was a man who was a manly man, but, but Jesus was not somebody that you would look at and, and think anything special of. You'd have thought, you'd have seen him and you would say stuff like this. That's Jesus? Really? Hmm. I, it just wouldn't have fit. Just would have been very plain, very normal. And, 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 and who Jesus was just was off. You know, he's, he's not wearing David's clothing. He's not coming in kingly apparel. He's not a king. But he's doing things that are just perplexing. It's, could this be the son of David? It was very, very difficult. They just couldn't get it. He was too humble. They were used to prideful leaders. And this is a guy that's willing to serve. And he's hanging out with like the average guys. And then you have also the second response was rejection and blasphemy. The response of the religious leaders is one of total rejection and slander. They hear the people say in verse 23, is not this the son of David? The next statement would have been, this is the son of David. Before they can get to that, the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of the day said this. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. So the conclusion of the Pharisees and the religious leaders was that Jesus, who was a perfect and exact representation of who God the Father was in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, his miracles of casting out demons, the power of God on display was not of God, but was in fact of the devil. This fellow belongs to Satan's kingdom was their conclusion. Now, why didn't they just deny the miracles and say, you know what, this is a fraud. These aren't real miracles. This guy's Benny Hinn. Because Jesus didn't do Benny Hinn miracles. He did miracles that were so potent and real and undeniable that they had to do something with it. So either they say, God allowed you to do that miracle, or it must be Satan. There must be some other power. And so they come up with a lie that says that 
Jesus is doing this by the power of Beelzebub. Sometimes it's translated Beelzebul. Now, this is not the first time they call him this slanderous statement. They said the same thing of him back in Matthew 10, 25. Now, what does Beelzebub mean? It's not a common name in our day. Well, it goes back to 2 Kings 1, where it refers to a Philistine deity among the Ekronites. The name means the Lord of the Flies. Kind of odd to have a God of the Flies that you worship. But if you're in a part of the world where gnats and flies are extremely prevalent and they drive you crazy and you're polytheistic, then you will create a God who could perhaps help rid the flies from you. And the Jews took the name and applied it to the chief of the devils. And they translated it, not Lord of the Flies, but the Jews translated it as the Lord of the Dung. Or the Lord of the Poop Pile, if I may. Now consider how blasphemous it was to apply that name to Jesus, the sinless, perfect, gracious, holy Son of God. They were saying Jesus cast out demons by the God of the dung. He's being empowered by the dung God. And What you find is that the physical and spiritual ailments that were removed from the guy in verse 22 now show up in the religious leaders in verse 24. The demon that was removed from the guy in verse 22 seems to be the voice of the religious leaders in verse 24. The blindness that was removed from the man in verse 22 now seems to be on the eyes of the religious leaders who can see but they can't see, who hear but they cannot hear. What happens when those who are supposed to represent God, who are supposed to point people to the truth, are those who are in fact keeping people from knowing the truth? Is there anything more damaging than that? The most powerful agents who work for Satan are not the unbelieving atheists. The most powerful agents who work for Satan are the religious leaders who think they're serving God but are actually opposing him. In Luke eleven fifty two, Jesus said of them, Woe unto you lawyers. Lawyers were like scribal leaders, they, teachers. They studied the law. They were lawyers. And, and Jew, Jewish lawyers, they were lawyers who knew the Bible and would apply it in their day. He said, For you take away the key of knowledge. You enter not in yourself, and them that we're entering in, you're hindering. You're stopping people from coming in. Matthew 23, 15, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you can pass sea and land to make one proselyte. Like you're going, you're going around the world to try to find one person you can convert. And when he is made, you have made him twofold more a child of hell than yourself. Well, that sounds like Mormons today, doesn't it? Who deceive people. Jehovah Witnesses who deceive people. You say, man, that sounds pretty harsh. Have you studied their teachings? Because I have. I know exactly what they teach. They will not teach you that salvation is according to what the Bible teaches and what is true. They will deceive you. That's why I've talked to thousands, and I'm not exaggerating that, of people over my life, and I've asked this question. If you stood before God and He said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And when they say, I think I'll go to heaven because I'm good enough, 
And then they tell me they go to such and such church or such and such Catholic church or such and such Lutheran church or such and such. And I say, oh, really? How can a person go to a church their whole life and walk away believing that? Do you think you would come to Lighthouse for more than a week? And if somebody said, do you, you think you could be good enough to get to heaven? Would you have ever heard anything in this church that would tell you that? If there's one thing you would find out by being here is that you're not good enough to get to heaven. That you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That you don't simply would want to be saved, you need to be saved. I've had people tell me that go to other churches who've told me, oh, we don't believe in that save stuff like you guys do. Yeah, I did the same thing. I'm like, really? And where do you think we got that safe stuff at? <laughs> Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. You must. And if you don't believe in that save stuff, then why did Jesus come to earth? Because he said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. That means the person standing in your pulpit is a liar. And he's a worker, not of God, but then he's either deceived at best and satanic at worst. You say, well, that sounds pretty harsh. If Jesus said they were of their father, the devil, in his day, what do you think they are in our day, do you think it's any different? Friends, there are, there are people preaching in Xenia this morning who are not agents of the kingdom, they're agents of the kingdom of darkness. That's why you go to the people who would leave and you say, hey, how do you get to heaven? And they wouldn't know. Our head deacon in this church, when he was a young man, who's, a, who's got his doctorate, very intelligent individual, he came to his priest wanting to know how to be saved, the priest said, you read this 700-page book, and then I'll talk to you. He said, I left weeping. Felt like there was no hope. And then God opened up the door as the sovereign God does when he sees one who is seeking and drew that man to a Bible study where he heard the gospel and came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. Amen? Some of y'all been in, anybody ever been to a church where they never told you how to be saved? You never understood the gospel? You could have gone there your whole life and it's like, it was just so confusing. Just so confusing. There's nothing more important than you to know that. If there is ever a day you need to be in church to hear the word of God, it needs to be this day. You need to know the truth. LBC will tell you the truth. We will teach you the Bible. We will share with you what the Word of God says, and you are, and I are living in a world filled with darkness, and we need to know the truth. Secondly, the divine response to this demonic slander is in verse 25 through 29. How well do you personally handle slander? If somebody's like, man, they've been saying that all over about you, and, and you find out, you know, they posted it, all this stuff, and you're like, it's not even true. I mean, isn't that the most infuriating thing? And, and how does Jesus handle this? Verse 24, it says, but when... Verse 25, and Jesus, it says, knew their thoughts and said unto them. You know, Jesus, what they said was not an earshot of Jesus. But 
you don't, Jesus doesn't have to have the, the hearing of it. He hears our thoughts as loud as he hears our words. I mean, if you lived with Jesus, wouldn't that be a little bit something to think about? Uh, we would never have realized how much we can control our thoughts if we were in that time. But Jesus said unto them, and, and he begins to answer their thoughts. And he answers them with three irrefutable points. And the first point Jesus makes is how irrational is your thinking? Notice what he says in verse 25. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall he then stand? This is what's known as an axiomatic statement. It's true simply because it's self-evident. It's just blatantly true. It's unquestionably true. You can't argue the point. How completely unreasonable is it to believe that Satan is casting out Satan? And then, not only is he casting himself out, but then he chooses to do good works like healing people. Is Satan now an agent of good? I mean, what a foolish argument they gave. A second response Jesus gives is in verse 27. It says, And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils or demons, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. In those days there were itinerant Jewish exorcists who would go around doing incantations, doing different chants, and trying to supposedly remove demons from people by taking a ring that had a root in it and placing it under the nose of a demon-possessed person to draw out the demon. They'd put a bowl of water somewhere, and they would say if that bowl tips over, then the demon came out. These kind of silly things that they would do. The apocryphal book of Tobit also gives some of this Jewish hocus-pocus that was going on in those days. Jesus doesn't, doesn't do any of that. He just speaks the word, commands it, and it leaves we think about the Jewish exorcists in Acts 19. They saw Paul casting demons out by the name of Jesus. Seven sons of Sceva come along and think they can do the same. These are unchristian men who try to do it. Acts 19, 13, listen to what it says. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. We're going to use Jesus' name to cast out demons. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the, of the priests. It's a high-ranking family, which did so. And the evil spirit answers these guys. And they said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded." One demon overtaking seven men made them act crazy. Now, did these Jews cast demons out by God's power? I personally do not believe God empowered these Jews to cast out demons. The only example in the Bible is a group of Jewish exorcists seeking to implore the name of Jesus to do so, and instead the demons overtake them. If they could not cast out demons by the name of Jesus, why would we think they could do it by any other means? I think the demons in those days came out at times when they did these little tricks because they wanted to play along with their games to affirm these false teachers. This is seen in the Old Testament with the magicians of Pharaoh. These demonically empowered tricks were used to deceive people to believe in them. And that's exactly what I think was going on in those days. But what was Jesus' point? 
Jesus' argument here is that what you have the same case, me casting out demons and you have supposedly these guys casting out demons, you need to have the same judgment. You can't say they're doing it by the power of God and I'm doing it by the power of Satan. He says in verse 27, let them be your judges. Let them judge whether this is the case. Let those who are supposedly casting out demons judge whether they're casting them out by the power of Satan or God. And if they're casting it out by the power of God, then so am I. But if you're saying, if, if they say no, then what they're saying about Jesus is false. He did do it by the power of God. Then they've entrapped themselves by condemning them uh, and they would vindicate Jesus in such a way. Thirdly, he's telling them their thinking was really an admission of his power. Notice what he says in verse 28. He said, but if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Jesus ascribes the work of casting out demons as the Holy Spirit empowered him to do this. And he says in verse 28, since it's not Satan and it is God, then the kingdom of God has come. You have identified this as the kingdom of Satan. It's actually the opposite. The kingdom of God has come. It hasn't come in full consummation, which will come when Jesus returns in this his second coming, but it has broken through and Jesus came and began to reclaim humanity from the bondage of Satan's grip. And in verse number 29, he says another illustration. He says, or, how, or else how can one bind a strong man spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and he will spoil his house. Nobody breaks in your home without first being able to bind the man of the home, right? You've, you have to be able to neutralize the strongest person in the home to be able to take his possessions. Jesus is saying this, Satan is the strong man. Satan is a powerful force. Demons are powerful forces. But one who is stronger than Satan has now come. And he's come into this realm, and he has bound the strong man, and he is spoiling his goods. And what are Satan's goods? It, are those, it, it is, refers to those who are underneath the control of Satan, those who were once bound by him. You know, before you and I were children of God, before we were saved, we were actually called, according to the Bible, children of the devil. You're in either God's family or Satan's family. And Jesus Christ came and broke that bondage. That's why greater is he that is in you, my friend, if you're saved, than he that is in the world. And Jesus is pictured as the one who has defeated the strong man. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 6 verse 10, Therefore be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The way you overcome the enemy is through the power of Christ. And let me close with this in verse 30. I want to ask the question, which kingdom are you in? Jesus says this. Notice what he says. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. According to Jesus, there's only two groups in the world you can be a part of. You're either part of God's kingdom or Satan's kingdom, in God's family or Satan's family. Either you're saved or you're lost. There is no third option. Matthew 25, 46 says this. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Again, here Jesus affirms that either you are for him or you are against him. There is no neutral ground. And what's, it should be shocking for us, is Jesus groups the casual observer in his day who listened to his words, but did not join with him and serve with him and live for him. He lumped those casual observers in the same group with the blasphemous rejectors. 
He placed them all in the same group. There is, as one man said, there is no neutrality with Christ. A person is either with him or against him. A person either fights against evil or against righteousness. Standing still is impossible. Standing still is doing nothing for God. It is being neutral and working for evil by allowing evil to continue and grow without opposition. William Barclay writes, in this one piercing statement, Jesus lays down the impossibility of neutrality. If our presence does not strengthen the church, then our absence is weakening it. There is no halfway house in all things. A man has either to choose his side, abstinence from choice, suspended action, and no, is no way out because the refusal to give one side assistance is in fact giving support to the other. I would ask you, which side are you on? He says in verse 30, he that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. If there is a harvest field, and you're like, we're all for you going out and bringing in those fruits. But if you just sit and watch, you're actually not for the right side. According to Jesus, you have to be actively gathering. You have to be actively on his side. There is no neutral ground. Listen to me. Jesus did not come to build. Red Cross does a lot of great things. He didn't come to build the Red Cross. He didn't come to build parachurch organizations. He said, I have come to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against that. I've read through the Bible. It doesn't even say a whole lot about the family. Families are built through the ministries of the church. The church is what you should give so much of your heart, time, energy, prayers, life, and investment into. You should pour your life into this. Ask yourself, where would you be today if it wasn't for the work of God's church? If you have a heart to say, God, I want you to use my life, it, then, then plug into the church. Say, I've been coming to church for a while, but I'm not a member. Then why not? Would you, would you get in, engaged to someone with never being married? You know what church membership is? It's saying, I'm willing to be committed. You can be in a relationship and not be committed. But you know what? When you become a member, you're saying, I'm going to be committed. What are you committed to? I'm committed to coming, committed to serving, committed to giving. I'm committed to getting involved in something. I'm committed to living a pure life. But if you don't want commitments, if you don't want to be in a committed relationship, don't, don't be a member. If you don't want to serve, if you don't want to get involved, if you don't want to roll your sleeves up and say, Lord, let me be a servant in your church, then, then, then just stay at a distance. I can tell you, from my family growing up, we did that for decades. It was in my family. We got into a church and we began to participate. Instead of being a, 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 a prospector, we, instead of just watching, we came into the game. Instead of being on the outskirts, we said, let's get involved. Let's do something. And it's going out, reaching people for the gospel. Coming in, we started cleaning the church. I began to help with this and that, helping the kids, just ministering wherever we could. That's when God began to radically change our family's life. Listen, if you're not a member, you need to join the church. You need to get involved. You need to go from being a, an attender to a participant. Amen? It's true. Well, I, I don't believe in church membership. Then I would never be offended to sit down and just have a conversation and let you know why that is an unbiblical viewpoint. You need to, there, well, I'm just part of the body of Christ. There is no universal body of Christ that's, that's in practice. You, the body of Christ, the church is the ecclesia, the called out who assemble together. You, we're not joining with the church in Africa today, in China, in Asia. 
those are all local churches. And when Jesus came in Revelation, he wrote seven letters to seven local independent New Testament churches who had pastors and leadership and people who could be accountable. You're not married to everybody. There's no Jew. There's no Greek. There's no bond nor free. We're all one in Christ. But there is family still, right? So there's a spiritual reality to the universal church. But that's in prospect. That's in future. That's one day in heaven. But in practice, it's in individual units like churches, just like families, just like marriages, just like that. And you are placed into the universal body of Christ through spiritual baptism, but you're placed into the local church by physical baptism, Acts 2.42. They were saved and baptized and added to the local church body. You need to plug in. This is what Jesus came to do. And it's the greatest. Let me ask you this. What is more impactful on Xenia than what God's doing through Lighthouse? Is Walmart more impactful? Is, is, is the Red Cross is, 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 is other parachurch organizations. Listen, there are other groups doing wonderful things, but God has chosen to use the wonderful churches that's been scattered throughout Greene County to preach the gospel. And so roll your sleeve up, get in, and I'm telling you, friends, if you want to gather with Christ, gather in the vehicle that he's chosen to use to reach the world, and that's through the church. That's why we're all about church planning. We're all about sending out missionaries to start churches and get involved. Do something for God. Let 2024 be the year where you did something for God and used in a great way through the ministries of the church. And one of those, Acts 2.42, is going to be a huge ministry that you can jump into in, 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 in February, LBC 2.42. Get plugged into a life group. Get plugged into a class. Get plugged into greeting. Get plugged into helping. There's stuff every single week. Hundreds of people at Lighthouse are involved in serving. The Bible tells us there was no neutral ground. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, there are two spiritual forces at work in the world and we must choose between them. Satan is scattering and destroying, but Jesus Christ is gathering and building. We must make a choice and if we choose to make no choice, we're really choosing against him. It's a powerful reality. And so I say with Joshua in Joshua 24, choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose you this day. The world is dying and going to hell. And they're not going to get saved if we just do our little Jesus thing at home by ourselves. Men, we need to be lights in the world. Amen. Let's rise up and live for him. 